Welcome to the Writer's Block Party Podcast with your hosts Meredith Bond and Prue Warren, where they discuss every aspect of a writer's life, from the craft of writing and editing, through publishing and marketing, and finally into building a global publishing empire. Here is Mary and Prue. Hello, welcome to the Writer's Block Podcast. I am your ignorant host, Prue Warren. Thankfully, here with a much wiser co-host. Hi, I am Meredith Bond, and I can claim no wisdom. (laughs) I can only claim experience. (laughs) Today, we have our returning champion. Today, we have the return of J.T. Bach. Hello, JT. Welcome. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much for being here, Jane. Yay. (laughs) And you're here. Listen, I have have to make an aside because we we asked you to come on and explain to us about Chekhov's gun. And Mm -hmm. last week when we were podcasting, I said, as an aside to people, it's not the same Chekhov as Star Trek. I made that mistake. And then I said, Anton Chekhov and couldn't remember who Chekhov and Star Trek's first name was, and I was lying in bed this morning, like, waiting for the alarm to go off, and I went, Pavel! How could I have missed Pavel Chekhov? So, so let's be clear. We're talking about Anton Chekhov, the playwright, not Pavel Chekhov, the weapons officer. That's my introduction to you, Jen. Tell us about Chekhov. In fact, what's funny was that I'm looking over the workshop that I did on this for W for Washington romance writers. That was about like two years ago. And in my notes, I said, yes, Prue, sometimes it's not a literary technique. And I was like, Oh, actually, so I did. And I, it's on the slide where I have that sometimes have all Chekhov does have a gun. Cause there's a scene in Star Trek. You know? <laughs> That's funny. Chekhov's gun. Oh my God. Goodness, that's fantastic. Well, what's oh, been I was actually listening to the podcast you all did with Kathy Seidel. And she's so good. Isn't she smart? She is. She is. She's brilliant and so much insight. And I was, uh, there was the part where she was talking about um, Mary's uh, token of love book and the tinderbox that ended up. Oh, uh uh-huh. And right. I, I want to talk about that a little later because of how, uh, you know, kind of how like people, readers will pick up on something. Because it was very interesting that Kathy picked up on the tinderbox that your heroine was carrying around and that she had grabbed at the end of a chapter. You made a big deal about it at the end of a chapter, but then Kathy felt like there wasn't a follow through with it. And I think part of that is is maybe it was at the end of a chapter or uh, and she felt like it was highlighted. And that is something I want to talk about a little later, because a lot of the examples I have of Chekhov's gun, because I'm like a total film buff. I love movies. And so Chekhov's gun. Now, every time I watch a movie, I always kind of look for the thing that the director focuses on, because that's one of the things like with movies and all that. You don't have a lot of time 
you know, you you have you kind of like this podcast, you know, it's like, hey, you know, <laughs> try it for like 30, 35 minutes. And when a director has like maybe about an hour or two hours, or if you're Zack Snyder, maybe 12, who knows to do, you know, to do like a DC. But you know, you, you it do, just feels like 12. It's yes, feels it feels like 12. <laughs> you have like limited time to get your your point across. And so when you see that camera for like a few seconds panning to an object, could be a gun, could be a loaded gun on the table. It could be a mug. It could be, you know, some random object in a room. Usually there's a reason for it. So I'm going to go mm-hmm. through and I'm going to uh, go through the my presentation a little bit, uh, the notes that I had, because I figured that would keep me a little bit like structured and all for time. And for some of the listeners who may not know about Chekhov's gun, I'm going to go ahead and define it for them a little bit more. So oh, yes, thank you. I was going to ask for that. Okay. Yes. Um, so Anton Chekhov was a master of short fiction. And so he had to get a story across in as little words as possible. So everything in his stories needed to serve a purpose of moving the action forward. And he gave this writing advice. He was also the master of, of plays as well, too, like the Seagull and Uncle Vanya and all. Sisters. But, right. Yeah. And so he gave this writing advice. If in the first action you have a pistol in the wall, then in the following one, it should be fired. Otherwise, don't put it there. Because your readers, your audience, they're going to wonder why there was so much focus on this. So the best example of the gun principle comes from his uh, writing and his work. For example, in the act one of his play, The Seagull, the main character carries a rifle out onto the stage. So we have it in the hands of the main protagonist. By the end of the play, the the rifle is ended, is shot by the person who carried by the character that carried it out. So, but imagine if the gun was never fired. Do you think the audience would be waiting and wondering why the main character carried this gun out? Would they be disappointed, feel left down? You know, because yeah. But here, let me. I, can I interrupt you? Do you mind mm-hmm. if I interrupt? Yeah, I want, I need to, I need to just see if you can answer the question, what's the difference between Chekhov's gun coming on in act one that has to be fired by act two? Yeah. And stage dressing. Say I wanted to say my character is an outdoorsman. He's very huntery. He's comfortable mm-hmm. in the wilderness. And later he rests. That's exactly what I was thinking of, Prue. Exactly. Right, right, right. What's stage dressing versus a Chekhov's gun? Or, or just character development. Yeah. Well, and I think this kind of goes back to a bit of uh, the podcast with Kathy, because I, I found it really fascinating because she took both of your books and she went into detail about different uh, motifs that you both had, which I thought was really fascinating. And one of the things I thought was interesting, too, was that she talked about, Prue, how you had a lot of objects in your world. Whereas Mary in her books didn't use a lot of objects. It was primarily, um, you know, the, the settings and the scenes between the two main characters. So you can definitely, I mean, the way I see the difference is the focus is the making of a big deal because you can have two characters sitting at a table and they're cutting up food and they're eating. And that's part of the dialogue is that they're, you know, they're taking bites of their food or they're having drink. And that's sort of like moving it forward. 
And, and again, like, you know, showing things in the room, like you said, like, I want to show that my hero is a hunter. And so you might have, you know, guns and, and animal heads, uh, you know, around, you know, stuffed animals and things like that around to show, you know, what, what he enjoys doing. But I think the difference would be, um, I mean, well, you are kind of setting up the character there. Like if you're setting him up as uh, a huntsman, then there might be a reason for it later on too. That's, that's true. That's part You're of right. His character. That's part of who You're he right. is. So I think it really. Right. So if you if you stress that and show exactly all of his hunting paraphernalia and actually show a gun in his hand, you're not only saying this is a hunter and it's important to him and his character development, but also it has to figure into the story. Yes. Yes. Good. Yes. And because, you know, he could be later on, maybe he, he saves one of the characters or he's out hunting in the woods and that's where he discovers somebody hiding that he ends up helping. uh, Right. So I feel like as, as authors, everything that we put into the character, you know, things in their home and who they are, plays a role will play a role in the story and I think a lot of times maybe like during the editing process when we need to kind of especially if we're doing like a short story too looking at those kind of things looking at some of the set dressings that you have in your story and trying to figure out is this important to know does this play a role later you know I mean you could have two characters eating and having dinner and maybe not even think that the meal is that important, but maybe it might be important because later on they're out for a long time and they don't have any food, you know, and because mm-hmm. they had, they're like, oh, when did I have my last meal? It was yesterday. And they're straining in the right. woods, wandering around. And so right. this kind of plays a role in like how long, you know, how until they start to starve or, you know, depending on the type of stories that you're writing, or they might be invited to an event and they don't eat anything at the event and they insult the host because they don't eat because they are already <laughs> ate. And so they insult the host by not eating their food. And, you know, so there's lots of things that can play a role in it. And I think that's part of the editing process too. It's like, does this serve to move the story forward? Does this serve uh-huh. to set up something later on? And, or will it serve to maybe confuse readers later? Will they get hooked up on this one scene that I'm writing and I don't, I don't have the follow through later on, and it might cause some confusion or disappointment later, you know. And I think that that's all part of the editing process too. When we try to, so, so Chekhov's gun is helping me write clean. I think so. I mean, that that's the way I feel. That's the way I look at Chekhov's gun. Is that it is it is a way for me when I go through because a lot of times, like when I do my first draft, I'm like, oh, it'd be like so cool if this like person like you know, carried this particular necklace around or whatever, wore this particular necklace and I'm describing the necklace. I'm like, mm, I think this needs to come into play later on. Like <laughs> right. making a big deal about this necklace. Does she lose a necklace later? Does, you know, somebody else have a similar necklace and it kind of, you know, bonds them because they're like, oh, my mother used to have that necklace. You know, there's, if I'm making a big deal and I'm taking up space on the page, like I, I, it needs, I it needs to pay off later. 
I feel it needs to pay off later. I, you know, there's some authors that I absolutely love. So, and I feel like I can say this, you know, because it's okay to criticize like Stephen King because he's like, <laughs> anyway, like I'm punching up, you know, um, there was like, I remember I've read a couple of his books. Like I love Stephen King and, but I remember reading Needful Things and that was about um, essentially like a, the devil or demon guy that uh, ran a shop of, you know, curios. Yeah. And, and they, you know, they, they were imbued with different powers and it it caused people to do different things, usually bad things that ended up (laughs) in the end, but spoiler, (laughs) (laughs) but they, but what was interesting that there were sometimes when he had too much detail and it, it was, it was awesome because it created like this atmosphere, but at the same time, I found myself skipping over pages of that book Mm-hmm. And I didn't miss anything. Mm-hmm. Like it, it's, it's not like, Oh, were, that's not good. Yeah. Yeah. And so that was, it, it's a great book, but it, it, that, that is what I'm talking about. Like where you might have more, that's more of a set dressing. And it's kind of cool. Like, it's almost like he was given instructions like, Hey, when you make this into a movie someday, <laughs> which right, right, right. <laughs> made into movies, this is what needs to be inside the, the curio shop, you know? <laughs> so. <laughs> I we I, I don't want to I don't want to take you away from your presentation too long, but at no, some point I'm going to talk great. about red herrings too, because there mm-hmm. are times when detail is deliberately placed to deliberately torment the reader. So mm-hmm. carry on, carry on, carry on. Go back to what you were saying. Well, you know, I was going to talk a little bit because this is interesting because we're talking about you know set dressing and setting up character and setting, which is which is incredibly important. But a lot of times, you know, like I said, those the setting and the the sets really do. When you look back on your own writing, they will inform what that character does later, and and set up some of the scenes for later. And you may not even realize that you're doing it, which I think is pretty yeah, cool. I now, do too. One of the things I did when I was doing this presentation it was because people get confused about foreshadowing and Chekhov's gun. Mm, and yes, so. You know, what I found was that foreshadowing is a little bit more general, whereas Chekhov's gun is a little bit more specific. Ah. So, for example, you have uh, our character, Julie, walks into a room and says, I have a bad feeling about this. So that would be sort of like foreshadowing, like, okay, like Julie's characters are setting up that something's bad that happened in this room. And check, but if we're using like the Chekhov gun principle, Julie says to her buddy, Mark, when I hiked this trail last time in the rain, I sprained my ankle and my boyfriend had to carry me back to his car. And then hours into the hike with Mark, Julie sprains her ankle again. And Mark then sprains his ankle trying to carry her down. Now they're both stranding in the woods. And so we actually have her talk. So we have a setup. And so the Chekhov's gun here isn't a physical object. It's actually a story about this trail and about how it's kind of treacherous and slippery. And she sprained her ankle last time. And so now we're kind of setting up in the reader's mind and the audience's mind, like, Oh, wait a second. Like, this could happen. And so when it does happen, the readers are like, Oh, she pretty much said in the beginning that, we may sprain our ankles. So, and one scene too would be uh, foreshadowing would be a mirror breaks when a character looks into it. You know, they walk into a hallway and they look at a, a mirror and it, and it cracks. 
Well, <laughs> Chekhov's gun, what I see happening with there is that a mirror breaks in the first scene. So you have a character moving into this old home and they're moving the mirror and the mirror breaks and a, and a chard, shard from the mirror like goes underneath one of the counters. So then later on, the character uses that shard to defend themselves when a kidnapper comes in to grab them. And so that's setting up like now the viewers are like, oh, yeah, I remember she dropped that mirror and she missed that giant piece that fell underneath the cabinet. And she uses that to defend herself later. So that would be a Chekhov's gun. So the Chekhov's gun used properly gives readers the glory of resolution. Now something that's been left hanging comes comes to resolution. It's very satisfying. Yeah. 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 And and again, it it has to do with how much like when, you know, in the example of the mirror, if you're writing that scene, you could have her maybe remember, you know, see herself kicking, you know, she kicks a, a shard of the, the mirror, like she's cleaning it up. She kicks a shard underneath the curio cabinet. She tries to get it, but then somebody's knocking at the door. And so it's forgotten because, right. you know, we've all done that where, you know, we get distracted right. by something else, right. but in the reader's mind, it, it's, it is a satisfaction to have at the very end go, oh, there's the shard. She sees it. She's able to grab it. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome that's awesome Stephen King did a great short story about a mirror remember the demonic mirror the de, the diver glass do you remember that one where if you oh saw a spot God. it was the demon coming to get you and you would die <laughs> yes yes oh my gosh Stephen King did such a great job with short stories too I, no I feel kidding. off about, no about a lot of those. but to use that same example having somebody look into a mirror and having it break would be more foreshadowing of maybe bad tidings to come. Mm -hmm. Whereas the mirror breaking and missing that shard of glass, that would be a Chekhov's gun. Yes. Yeah. 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 Just to clarify. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So one of the things I like to do, and this is, like I said, I'm like a movie person. And so... (laughs) My husband gets frustrated with me because I'll be watching something, especially horror movies. I'm a huge horror movie fan. And I'll be like, oh, my goodness, that's got to play a role in it later. (laughs) (laughs) And he gets really frustrated. He's also very frustrated with me because I always talk about the dark moment. Like, oh, all hope is lost. How are we going to get out of this now? (laughs) We're we're coming up on the dark moment any moment now. Right? Should Should be sex at 60 any minute. (laughs) um so i i wanted to talk because i'm such a a a movie uh dork i i wanted to talk about something i think a lot of people might have seen back to the future like especially like our Mm -hmm. generation oh yeah and so that's one of the ones so if anybody who's listening to this has not please go and say it (laughs) for your culture for your cultural literacy you need to see exactly thank you thank you So one of the cool things about the Back to the Future movie, and, you know, for those who may not be um, familiar with it, it's about um, Marty McFly, who is this young man in the 80s. <laughs> he was young guy in the 80s. <laughs> <laughs> and 
And he ends up um, going back in time to the 1950s and his mom, kind of weird, but I talk about it now, his mom kind of like gets the hots for him, not knowing it's her son later on in the East. And he almost ruins like his parents meeting and, and then, and, you know, and then in the future having him. And so there's like this whole like time I need to get, you know, I need to fix everything in the past because now it's affecting the future, yada, yada, yada. But the, how he gets back to the future is super important. And it's set up in the first movie because there's a series of three movies in the first movie. This is really set up very well in the first scene um, with the clock tower. Now there's a clock tower in Marty's town in his, the small town that he lives in that has not worked since I believe it was the 1950s. There's actually a date. There's a, one of the things that's really cool in this, in this opening scene is that Marty's hanging out with his girlfriend in the, the center of town in the square where the clock tower is on this building And as him and his girlfriend are having a conversation, a woman comes up and says, hey, we're trying to fix the clock tower and uh, so that it can work again. And so can you, here's the Hill Valley Preservation Society, can you donate? And of course, Marty takes the flyer from a woman's hand and he donates to her. And then that same flyer is what uh, Marty's girlfriend writes her phone number down on it to give her a call later. And Marty is looking at her her phone number and kind of longing like, oh, I love her so much. She's so awesome. I think her name was Jennifer now I think about it. (laughs) (laughs) And, And so he holds it up. And what's fantastic is that he's reading the flyer, but he's reading the the side of the flyer that was blank. And so the printed side of the flyer is actually shown to the audience. So the audience sees, say the the clock tower, that the clock tower was struck by lightning. It stopped at 10.04 and it actually has the date and everything. So when Marty ends up back in the past, he had uh, a friend of his, Doc, who is amazing. He, uh, he has, <laughs> yes, Doc Brown. He has this DeLorean that he has souped up to go uh, to travel through time, and and Marty, through a series of events, ends up back in time using the DeLorean, which doesn't have any power to get back to the future. So he finds Doc in the past, and so they work to try to find a way to get Marty back to like nineteen in the nineteen eighties. I think it was like nineteen before, and. So what was really cool was that when Marty was in the past, he realizes that the date that he's in the past is a couple days before the clock tower is hit by lightning. And lightning is what they can use to get the car back to the future and Marty back to the future. So that whole scene where you don't think it's very important with the in the flyer, that actually sets up how he figures things out in the end and gets back home. It's just it's awesome. I love it. It's very tight. It's a jigsaw puzzle. Every single piece was critical. You just don't know it when you're first watching it. Yes. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Another movie that, you know, again, this isn't a an, an actual gun, but is uh, I'm huge Indiana Jones fan. I love Raiders of the Lost Ark when I was a kid. That was like my favorite thing ever. And so Everybody knows that Indy hates snakes, absolutely despises snakes. How do we know that Indy does not like snakes? Well, that's because- I hate snakes, Jock. I hate them. 
Now. <laughs> quote that whole movie too. <laughs> so, so uh, for for fans who may not know Raiders of the Lost Ark, number oh my one, God, shame on you. Illiterate. You gotta shame watch that one. <laughs> Please watch that. Hurry, hurry. <laughs> yes, hurry. So. <laughs> You know, Indiana Jones is an archaeologist, and uh, he also fights Nazis too. And uh, this is set back in the nineteen late nineteen thirties. And so, uh, Indy is uh, trying to grab these artifacts, and a lot of times he's sort of like butts heads with uh, some Nazi archaeologists. And this really did happen back in the day, where archaeologists were from the Nazi party were actually trying to find some of these archaeological artifacts that were were supposedly had significant power, such as the Ark of the Covenant. Because if any army that has the Ark of the Covenant in the possession would be... Um, Undefeatable. Defeat them, yeah. And so in the opening scene, India is trying to get a particular artifact. And we see him running away after he gets caught by the locals and he runs away and to a waiting plane that's going to take him off and, and save him. It was his uh, friend kind of like in the getaway car, but this is a getaway plane. And so he jumps in the back seat of the plane and he realizes there's a snake there <laughs> and it's the pilot's pet snake, Reggie. And Indy's like, I hate snakes. <laughs> I hate snakes. And he's like, it's just Reggie. Get a backbone. <laughs> Which Indy would need that backbone because later on in the movie, what was this? I think it was like in the, in the second act, India has to go into the well of souls tomb. He's thrown in there by the Nazis to find the Ark of the Covenant, which is supposedly in the Well of Souls. Uh, after he gets captured by the Nazis, then he's thrown in there to try to get it. And surrounding him is a pit of snakes. So, you know, he were set up in the very opening scene that he hates snakes. He's scared of snakes. Like he is very, this, this man who's like tough, who's like fighting like these big giant Nazi dudes and, and uh, you know, going all these adventures, having a boulder come after him and stuff. He actually is like terrified of snakes. So this kind of amps up the conflict in that scene. Like how is, you know, and Marion, who is one of his associates and old girlfriends is in the pit too. And she has to help him kind of like survive with these snakes because it adds an other layer, layer of conflict. Like he's terrified of this. Like, how is he going to get through this if, you know, they're surrounded by snakes? So it's, it's fascinating how it was just like a little thing. And, and you kind of think like, maybe this is just a little character quirk of his. No, it actually plays a significant role later. So because right. when you watch the opening scene, he's been brushing enormous tarantulas off his buddy's back. Yes. He's confronted below darts the 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 tribe has come this mm -hmm. man has faced every single thing he could possibly face without blinking and the yeah. snake is mm -hmm. what what puts him back into a infantile state he just doesn't so you're right it's yeah. Chekhov's snake those that snake plays <laughs> off later <laughs> Chekhov's snake <laughs> good <laughs> i hadn't even thought i just thought when i first saw it i thought it was funny here's this yeah. tough guy he's unmanned by a snake 
Well, and what's really fascinating too, another thing about, you know, a Chekhov's gun does not necessarily, you know, we're talking about like the main character bringing in a gun in Chekhov's play, but, you know, it can also be for your secondary character or your, you know, like in this instance, Indiana Jones, we have Marion who in the her, the opening scene that we see her, you know, who was Indy's ex-girlfriend and she has uh, information regarding, you know, a lot of the, uh, where the, where the Ark of the Covenant is and all, you know, because of the uh, emblem that she, the, the pendant that she has from her father. Oh, yeah. But in the very opening scene, we see her having a drinking contest, this petite woman having a drinking contest with these very rugged, like, you know, wrestler type men, you know, just tough guys. And she drinks them under the table. Now, it's kind of like you're like, oh, you know, that's kind of funny. Ha 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 ha. You know, the small woman like can drinks and she wins a drinking competition, all this money. Well, that plays a part later on when she's trying to escape from Belloc, who has kidnapped her. So she starts drinking, having competitive competition with him, drinking. He ends up passing out. And she's like, I'm going to sneak out now. (laughs) And it's believable that she could now drink this smaller man under the table because of what she was able to do earlier. So, you know, that's a good point. So. If you think of if you think of Chekhov's gun, I mean, it goes much further than just a prop in Act One. You're talking about setting up your entire story by leaving breadcrumbs in the beginning that will that will turn into a loaf of bread at the end. Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. I like that. I like that. Yeah, and you know, it doesn't have to be just in one single story. And one of the in my presentation, I was talking about. Uh, the Avengers, the Marvel Universe, and how they started out. To me, you're catnip to me. (laughs) We can talk about you throwing Game of Thrones at this point. I'm just gonna marry you. Go ahead, Marvel me. Go ahead. The Infinity Stones, which you know played an absolutely important role in Avengers Infinity War. You know, we, we, the stones are introduced in um, the Infinity Stones, I think. Okay, let me look at my notes real quick. So we learn in detail about the Infinity Stones in the first Doctor Strange movie. I was going to so, say Thor the Dark World has an Infinity Stone in it. Yes, yes. In fact, each of them do. And then Doctor, when Doctor Strange came out, the first one, they talk about how at the dawn of the universe, there was nothing. Then boom, the Big Bang said sent six elemental crystals hurtling through the virgin universe. These infinity stones each control an essential aspect of existence, space, reality, power, soul, mind, and time. And so you have that set up right there, but that's five of the 13 movies directly or indirectly touched upon the stones leading up to the big snap in Avengers Infinity War. So when you have a series, you can set the scene for things. And what I thought was like super cool when I went back and was rewatching some of the movies, like we have uh, Gamora, who was Thanos, who you know does the big snap. She, uh, her, his adopted daughter, she talks about this in, in some of her earlier roles. She said that if Thanos gets all six infinity stones, he can, you know, essentially make the universe go away with the snap of his fingers. And she snaps. And this is several movies before the affinity war, you know, the, the movie where he actually does that. So 
even Thanos, like when he is talking to Dr. Strange, he talks about being a survivor and that he said with all six stones, I could simply snap my, my fingers and the world will, you know, the universe will cease to exist. All these people would cease to exist. And so throughout over 20 films, the power of the affinity stones and the need to protect them from falling into the wrong hands and being used together has built this conflict throughout. Like each, each Marvel movie has its own, you know, conflict and plot and beginning and end. But in the movies that are introducing the infinity stones, we're realizing how much power each individual stones have and the importance of keeping them safe from falling into the wrong hands. And so it's sort of been building up. And when the snap does happen, we kind of needed to see the snap. We couldn't just have the heroes stop Thanos before he does the big snap because it's been building for 20 movies, you know? Really? And and so, and that ended up kind of being, I mean, that was definitely, if you look at the whole, all the movies as, you know, one big storyline, that was definitely at like, what, the three quarter part of uh, the whole storyline where you had. It was a, it was a black moment. It was the blackest yeah. moment. <laughs> when the, when you walked out of the theater, you thought we'd lost. You thought yeah. the Avengers had lost. And it, it took them another year before they finally resolved it and gave them their mm-hmm. AGA. That was, you're right. If you look at the entire cluster of movies as one long series, mm-hmm. that's an, a, a, the best black moment ever where Thanos wins. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and the you- Harry Potter books do the same thing. They have they have uh, guns on the wall and, and foreshadowing throughout all seven books that mm-hmm. culminate and are used in the last book. Yep. Yeah. Once again, resolution and resurrection. Oh my God. It's the Jesus story all over again. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying sure to think, are there, are there any Chekhov's gun in the Jesus myth? Right. I mean, does Jesus as a baby go and I cross you out there, mom. Right. I mean, <laughs> I've often thought, and I, I, don't mean to, I think to Joseph bust. Campbell would have something to say about that. Joseph Campbell oh, would have so something too. to say about I that. So I think that I think without without being distressing to anybody's religion, I've tried to read the Bible and it's not a very good story. Its construction um, is not good. It's it's uh, so so. I'm like Chekhov's gun. We need to go back two thousand years to when they were writing the Bible and and just introduce some of these these elements, right? <laughs> well, I mean, I do say that, yeah, he did have to die because you know, um, in in the Old Testament, it said a, a savior would come and he would essentially be sacrificed, and so so yeah, so there was the expectation that it, while you're reading the the New Testament, that he was gonna. You are a good storyteller. Well done. You've done it. Done it. Done. Foreshadowing or Chekhov's gun. (laughs) But it's it's one of those things where it's so much fun. I I noticed, like, for example, you know, we're we're starting to run out of time, but one of the things that I really enjoyed uh, in recent stories, and uh, I don't know if if either of you watched, okay, if either of you watched Stranger Things. I only watched the first season. Oh, oh, it's so oh. good. It's so good. There is in the, the latest season I was watching, there's a light bright that's introduced by one of the uh, main characters, younger sister. 
And she's playing it and you're thinking, okay, well, this takes place back in the mid eighties. And of course, like braids were popular then it actually serves a bigger purpose. And so I saw her playing with it in the one scene at the kitchen table. And then later on in another episode, right before kind of like the dark moment, you see her carrying the light bright past a group of characters that were trying to figure out how to contact their friends on the other side. And if you watch the original, the first season, you know that lights, electricity play an important role in communicating between our world and the upside down world that they call it. And so when I saw the light bright and the little girl carrying it the second time, I was like, they're going to use that. (laughs) I was so excited. Um, Also in another movie I saw, which I know you all probably haven't seen this because like I said, I'm a huge horror fan. There is a movie called X, which is a horror movie about a group of people who are making, um, this is set back in the seventies, a group of people that are making a horror movie, um, very uh, not horror movie. I'm sorry. They're making an X rated film and they use this guy's, they, they rent a house in this guy's farm to do it. And of course it turns into a horror movie, but they're uh, in the very opening scene, they come to this guy's farm and the farmer brings out a, a shotgun and, and, you know, like, why are you on my property? And then there's a woman in the, in the van that sees her boyfriend, you know, with the, the guy with the shotgun at her boyfriend and she reaches in the glove compartment of the van and sees a gun. Well, the, her boyfriend explains to the farmer, Hey, we're the ones that rented the property from you, you know, the house. And he's like, Oh, okay. And he puts a shotgun down. He's like, Oh, it's not loaded anyway. And then the boyfriend says, well, I have a gun in the, in the van too. That's not loaded. Well, in the final scene, both of those guns are used and one was loaded. (laughs) Oh, And it was brilliant because not only were you kind of waiting, like, like when the, the last girl standing, you know, cause in a horror movie, there's always the last one standing and you're like, <laughs> get the gun in the glove box, get the gun in the glove box. And you're yelling at her to do that, to protect herself. And when she finally does, you know, there's, you're like, well, is it going to work or is, was it loaded or was it not loaded? You know? So Wonderful. that was, that was brilliant. That was brilliant. So, uh, so that kind of stuff, I, I challenge you and I challenge the listeners when you're watching your next, your next movie or TV show, look for, look in that first scene and see if whatever the person has like, you know, in their hand or something that's focused on by the director is that important later on. And I'm so going to. And I'm going to go back to Mary's story in the beginning, because I think that's one of the things we talk about, like writers and how writers can do this. You know, one of the ways I think about is, you know, when we were talking about the shard, you know, like the woman kicking the shard underneath the the cabinet, it can be something as easy as, you know, somebody has um, a favorite mug and they see the hero, you know, like maybe their love interest or whatever, using that same mug. You know, that's and that kind of strikes like a conversation between them. And I think it's really important, too. It was interesting with Mary's story. It's like if it's if something is at the very end of a chapter, does that kind of focus it? And so that makes me think about my own stories like, okay, when I'm working on my stories where something is inside the scene, how much weight does it have? Because definitely having something at the very end of a scene, I, I guess, well, you know, you can kind of see with, with Kathy's assessment ended up sta- sticking in her mind. 
And what did it stick more in her mind because that was introduced at the end of a chapter, as opposed to if it was introduced in the middle of a scene, you know, where she was just kind of moving about and moving through her life. And so that's, that would be interesting to um, see when you're editing, you know, for me, when I do my stories. So now I'm like, now I'm going to be like anything that I end on, I need to make sure. <laughs> that's a good point. That focus is, that a, is a good point. That, yeah. You have to use that. You have to know, you have to know its power. Yeah. And you have to be careful then of where you're ending your chapters. Yes. Always. Yeah. Yeah. I, and I find that too, with my editing, it's like, sometimes when I go back and I, and I'm looking at where my chapters end, I'm like, can it end earlier? Is this extra part of dialogue gonna, gonna really be able to pan out later on or, you know, whatever else I'm using in the scene, whatever prop or, you know, tidbit that I'm introducing, you know, how much weight am I placing on it? Because, you know, as authors, it's the weight is based on the amount of the amount of space we're taking up on the page, like the amount of description that we're using for it. Whereas, you know, a TV show, the weight is the weight of the camera. Like, where is the camera? Where is the camera focusing on? Where is the dialogue? What is the dialogue focusing on? That That's actually both in writing and in our, in movies. Because one of my other favorite movies is Death Proof by Quentin Tarantino. And there, there is a scene where you have a dialogue between these uh, characters in uh, the first act. And it's it's all setting up about how this one character is very clumsy and she falls and she can hurt herself. Whereas this other woman who's a stunt actor, she can fall and like trip and fall into a pot of glass and pops up and she's fine. And so they're telling these anecdotal stories about this. Later on in the movie, the stunt woman flies off of this car into the bushes after they're kind of like being chased by the villain. And the women all get out of the car and they're like, oh my gosh, she's dead. She's dead. And then all of a sudden she pops out and it's like, I'm fine. And everybody's <laughs> like, of course she's fine. Of course, because she, and that was this whole dialogue scene in the very beginning sets up that perfectly because now we actually believe she could go flying off of a car that's going like right. 60, 70 miles per hour and not have a scratch on her. Right. I have a summation analogy. I, I, when I first understood that romance books had a had a structure to them right mm-hmm. i was annoyed that you had to have what sex at 60 or of the black woman or whatever and, and i then i thought about it that every house has four walls and a foundation it, what you do with it is up to you mm-hmm. so uh I, I i often think of a novel or something that i'm creating as the equivalent of a house and what i think what you're telling me is that my Chekhov's gun is a load-bearing wall. And there are walls that you can easily knock out yeah. to expand the dining room, right? But yeah. you can't do it if it's a load-bearing wall. So your Chekhov's gun is there for structural support. It's not intermediate. This is this is a load-bearing wall, and you knock it out at your own peril. Mm-hmm. If you've got that in your story, then you've got a Chekhov's gun. Yeah. That's a really great analogy. Yeah, that's, that's <laughs> awesome. I love it. I love it. Brilliant. JT, you are fascinating. And I would keep you on this call all day. 
especially to say, what else did I watch? Because already Stranger Things is so I'm back on my list. Now I'm going to do Stranger Things. If JT says Stranger Things, I'm doing Stranger Things. <laughs> I don't know Quentin Tarantino. It's a little, he's a little yeah. much for me, but that's, that's okay. That's okay. He's, he's not, he's not everyone's uh, yeah. cup of uh, tea. Cup or of, or cup of, of Chekhov's gun. <laughs> um, but I did want to, I did want to promote what we're talking about next week which is at my insistence, we're going to try a panel, which Mary's a little nervous about. She says, we can't have more than three people on the call. Nobody will know who anybody is. It's not video, but I'm going to force it. I'm going to see if we can't make clarity out of talking about promotions and marketing for books with three people. One of them is Mindy Klasky, who has been on the podcast. Oh, they've all been on the podcast before. Mindy Klasky, who is a romance author, very good at marketing. Heather Amazing. Roberts, who is my promotions person. She works at, uh, she runs Elle Woods Promotions. Mm-hmm. And then Jenny Kate, who is an author who also does marketing. So we're going to see if we can't put the five of us together to discuss trends in marketing, what has worked, what hasn't worked, what the hell's going on with Amazon. I have a lot of questions. So that's oh, it's going to be really interesting. I can't well, wait to, sure. to hear what they all have to say. I know. I know. I want some answers. Damn it. What the hell? <laughs> <laughs> My marketing is like buckshot. It just goes everywhere. <laughs> I feel um, like <laughs> yeah. JT, thank you so much. You're thank you so awesome. much, JT. This was amazing. You really, you described things so clearly. I really appreciate that. That, I, I'm, I'm really glad that I'm really glad to be here. I, I am such a, like I said, I'm, I'm such a geek with this stuff. I, I really, <laughs> this is like, this gets me excited. And so I, I really appreciate y'all having me come on and talk about things that I'm passionate about. Cause I love this. And I definitely, next time y'all watch a movie or television show, look for, look for, look at the opening act and see what's focused on and see how they use it later on. Cause you won't From be now I will. From now yeah, on, I will. Absolutely. It's a great idea. It's a great idea. All right. Thank you, JT. Thank you, Mary. Thank you. Have a All great right. week. I'll talk to you next week, Mary. Okay. Bye. Bye. That's it for the Writer's Block Party this week. We don't want you getting so drunk on knowledge that you can't drive your laptop safely. But next week we'll be here before you know it, so check out the website at thewritersblockpartypodcast.com. One word. That's where you can find our archive of past podcasts and a place where you can get in touch with Mary and Prue or ask questions for the next podcast. Write with joy, friends, and see you next week. (laughs) 